This is Guns and Butter. And so I personally witnessed the uh, regulators at our agency being instructed by Washington under this new reinventing government movement that we were to refer to banks as our clients and we were to think of them as our clients. And I, not being a quiet type, uh, stood up and objected and said that our clients were the United States of America and the people of America. And they said, no, that's not correct. Right? Under new reinventing government uh, initiative, the client was the banks. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, William K. Black. Today's show, the greatest bank robbery ever. William Black is Associate Professor of Law and Economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He is a lawyer, academic, and former bank regulator, and author of The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One, How Corporate Executives and Politicians Looted the SNL Industry. The title of today's show was taken from the title of Martin Mayer's book, The Greatest Bank Robbery Ever, The Collapse of the Savings and Loan Industry. And according to William Black, the current crisis is 70 times larger. I caught up with Bill Black in Rimini, Italy at the first Italian grassroots economic conference on modern money theory produced by Italian journalist Paolo Bernard, which featured speakers Stephanie Kelton, William Black, Marshall Auerbach, Michael Hudson, and Alan Parquez. William Black, welcome. Thank you. We're here in Rimini, Italy for the first Italian summit on modern money theory, subtitled How to Stop the Plundering of Italy, of Our Incomes, of Our Rights, and of the Future of Our Children. What are your thoughts before the beginning of this grassroots economic conference? It will be held in a stadium here, and thousands of people are expected to attend. Yeah, it's an amazing thing, isn't it, for uh, regular people to want to hear from folks about economics and uh, pay their own way, not supported by any NGO uh, and such, just people concerned about their nation. So we're very excited, uh, and nothing like this uh, has happened that we're familiar with, so we're curious as well how the whole thing was going to work out. Well, yes, that's right. I mean, here we are in Italy. Are you aware of anything like this having uh, taken place in the United States? No. The Occupy movement, of course, is a different type of thing that's had teach-ins, and I've you know done teach-ins in L.A. and in New York City uh, and Wall Street, but this is very different, very authentically Italian. Well, I'm going to be anxious to get your uh, to get your opinions when this is over with. This is a three-day conference here at the end of February. Why don't we start with the banks? Are all banks malevolent? What's the difference between Goldman Sachs and a local bank? Uh, Certainly not all banks or bankers are malevolent. Um, Some of them do very useful things for the world. But overall, finance has really lost its way. And it's lost its way in a fashion that isn't simply wasteful, it's immensely destructive. 
So the whole theory in economics as we teach it as to why these banks are supposed to exist, the whole theory is that the, the bank's just a middleman, right? The banks are supposed to take all of our savings, accumulate enough money so that they can do something useful with it, make a big loan to a company that allows them to come out with a new productive investment, more people get employed, it's all good, right? That's the theory. Um, that's the middleman function. So middlemen shouldn't be very big, right? Uh, and they shouldn't make a whole lot of money. The whole efficiency principle for a middleman is they're smaller and they don't make very much money. Um, and they're helpful. And that the, all of our emphasis should be on the real economy, as we call it in economics that actually produces the jobs and the useful things. That's not the world we live in now. The world we live in, um, finance has become the dog instead of the tail. And finance in the United States, for example, takes, depending on the time period, 30 to 40% of all profits in business. Now think of that. They've become a parasite. And as a parasite, they always weaken the economy. But it's worse than that because they also engage, and this is many of our most elite institutions. So your question goes to precisely the right point. Why is it that our most elite institutions are our worst institutions? The ones that time after time violate the law and cause our recurrent financial in intensifying financial crises. That's what we study. That's what we try to get people to change policies so that we don't have these recurrent intensifying financial crises. Regarding the global financial crisis of 2007, what is money manager capitalism? Well, people use that phrase in different ways, but it's mostly uh, precisely what I've been talking about. Capitalism was typically a theory of how you created a real economy that had real jobs and did real things. Uh, nowadays, we do less and less of that, and we do less and less of that in particular in the United States and Europe. We have created finance as an absolute monster, a parasitical monster, and one that also periodically throws us in the ditch, a big chunk of the world in the ditch. So in the U.S. alone, in just the household sector, that's you and me, the losses from this crisis were $11 trillion. A trillion is a thousand billion. But we're an incredibly rich country. We're one country with a sovereign currency. Europe isn't those things. Europe is rich, certainly, compared to the rest of the world, but it doesn't have its own currency. It doesn't have a single nation state. And what you're seeing is a reaction to this crisis that has made it far worse. And it's become essentially a core versus periphery, where the core European nations are becoming increasingly furious at the nations on the periphery, like Greece and Spain and Italy and Portugal and Ireland, 
but it's the nations in the core that have in very large measure created the crisis. So the bigger the crisis they create, the more they blame the victims of their crisis, and the worse they make the crisis. With regard to banking and finance, do you feel that there is something inherent within the socioeconomic system of capitalism itself that it inevitably leads in this direction to financial speculation, etc. Do you think that that is uh, inherent in the capitalist uh, system? Yes, but, and here's the important but, um, pure capitalist systems don't exist anywhere. And they don't exist anywhere for very good reason, that they do put you into the ditch and they throw lots of humanity uh, aside and they produce uh, elite criminals. So you get crony capitalism, not real capitalism. And conservative economists like Adam Smith have recognized this from the very beginning. So they've always said you need government involved. Right? You know, how much government's involved, huge disputes. But they've always emphasized government has to be there, and they've always emphasized one key role for government, and that is the government enforcing the law. Right? Not just against people using physical force to steal, but against fraud. Even Ayn Rand emphasized that the government was essential to stop businesses from using fraud against people. And what's happened over the last 30 years, and it's happened particularly in the United States and in um, mainstream Europe, was that that got forgotten. That there was a new breed of economists, we call them theoclassical economists, because it's a religious dogma that said, no, 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 you have to get the government out of everything. And so uh, really extreme views have become the dominant views. The leading law and economics scholars in corporate law have now taught a generation of lawyers who've gone on to be the key decision makers that a rule against fraud is not necessary or even particularly important in securities markets. See, markets just automatically exclude fraud. If you could just make the government disappear, there could be no fraud. Now that's a view that has no basis in reality, no basis in any sound economic theory, contradicted by all human experience, um, but it wasn't a view just held by a whole generation of lawyers, it was held by Alan Greenspan who there's a really wonderful frontline documentary, The Warning, uh, about the warning uh, that um, the chair of the Commodities Future Trading Commission, an obscure agency, but one that's supposed to deal with financial derivatives. And um, she warned that this was going to produce a disaster. Alan Greenspan, then chairman of the Federal Reserve, and a host of Democrats and Republicans in the Clinton administration and the supposed Republican opposition at that time got together to crush her. 
and they passed a law, the Commodities Future Modernization Act of 2000, that forbade us to have any regulations, even against fraud, in particular kinds of financial derivatives, which are now $65 trillion in size. And Alan Greenspan said that we must not have regulations of these because fraud is no basis for governmental intervention because markets just automatically exclude it. Right? This is insanity of such an incredible level that only expert economists could believe it and, of course, propound it as if it were truth. And I remember that was uh, President Clinton that signed the bill, I believe, at the end of his uh, last term. Absolutely. And it was with the active support of uh, Treasury Secretary Rubin and then his replacement, uh, Summers. Uh, and, of course, President Obama brought back Larry Summers as his principal economic advisor. Well, Bill, you've probably already answered this next question, but I was about to ask you if you could talk briefly about the Clinton years, the deregulation of the financial sector, the speculative bubble and its significance. Well, what about the bubble that this created? Well, the bubble doesn't really emerge in the Clinton administration, but it's uh, appropriate to focus on the Clinton administration in terms of deregulation. So if I could just go back to the years just before the Clinton administration to do some setting. Uh, in 1990 and 1991, uh, under the first President Bush, uh, in uh, all good things in terms of fraud start in Orange County, California, in the United <laughs> States, and it started again in Orange County, California, was the making of these fraudulent liars loans uh, by savings and loans. And we were the regional savings and loan regulator, and we said, this is insane. This uh, has to produce huge losses and fraud, and so we stopped it. We killed it in the uh, savings and loans, which were federally regulated entities. So what happened? The leading maker of liar's loan, who, by the way, didn't just specialize in making liar's loans. He specialized in making liar's loans where they sought out minorities oh. and the elderly to do this to. Um, gave up his federal charter, gave up federal deposit insurance, converted and became a mortgage bank for the sole purpose of escaping our regulatory jurisdiction and going to an area where the federal government didn't have regulatory jurisdiction. And then proceeded, of course, to do all of these frauds, was eventually sued by 49 state attorney generals and the Federal Trade Commission, settled for hundreds of millions of dollars in penalties, and was promptly named the U.S. ambassador to the Netherlands. Oh, and then By they... the second President Bush, because, of course, he was the leading political contributor. Oh, my goodness. And what was his name? Uh, Roland Arnal. He's deceased uh, at this point. But this is what we do for our most elite frauds. We don't put them in prison. We get a minor fine that leaves them still multimillionaires, and then we give them our greatest honors and power because of the contributions. So that's the lead-in to the Clinton administration. But the first Bush administration had also been a leader in prosecuting 
the savings and loan debacle frauds, which is that era, those huge prosecutions are occurring in particular in 1990, 1991, 1992, just as the Clinton administration is about to come in. They win the election in 1992. And so our agency, the Office of Thrift Supervision, not only had killed these liars' loans, we had made over 30,000 criminal referrals. And this led to over 1,000 convictions of elite bankers. The total convictions were over 3,000. I'm only giving you the 1,000 figure from what are designated as major cases. So these are big players, right? By the way, flash forward to the current crisis, same agency made zero criminal referrals, and there have been zero elite uh, prosecutions. You're listening to lawyer, academic, author, and former bank regulator, William K. Black. Today's show, The Greatest Bank Robbery Ever. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Clinton administration does several things as soon as it comes in. First, it uh, deprioritizes prosecutions in the savings and loan area. It moves the prosecutors to health care fraud. Okay? Healthcare fraud is a very big problem, but that's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens, and it happens very quickly, is that the Clinton administration embraces uh, what was called the reinventing government movement, which I think many people have forgotten about. So if you really hate Al Gore conservatives, uh, (laughs) you should be very conflicted because it was Al Gore as vice president who was in charge of this anti-regulatory movement. And this anti-regulatory movement led to sharp cutbacks in regulation, sharp cutbacks in supervision, and as I've described, a sharp cutback in prosecutions of financial frauds uh, after a while. And so I personally witnessed the um, regulators at our agency being instructed by Washington under this new reinventing government movement that we were to refer to banks as our clients and we were to think of them as our clients. Wow. And I, not being a quiet type, Uh, stood up and objected and said that our clients were the United States of America and the people of America. And they said, no, that's not correct. Under new reinventing government um, initiative, the client was the banks. So this was a very hostile uh, view. And so we call this the three Ds, deregulation, desupervision, which is the rules may stay, but nobody enforces them and de facto decriminalization. And the three Ds become very large under Clinton administration that actually expands under Bush. And between that and what was occurring in executive compensation, we produced what we in criminology refer to as a criminogenic environment. And that's an environment where the incentives are so perverse that you produce epidemics of crime in this case, epidemics of fraud by your most elite financial institutions. And what government agency were you working in at that time? At that time, the Office of Thrift Supervision. 
but what I'm describing was not limited to the Office of Thrift's supervision, although um, there is, and I understand this is radio, uh, but there is an iconic image that does come out of the Office of Thrift Supervision, and your listeners can find it online even today if they look at the annual report of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation for 2003. It's a picture of the head of the Office of Thrift Supervision holding a chainsaw. He's standing next to the three leading bank lobbyists in America and the deputy head of the FDIC who will become his successor as head of the Office of Thrift Supervision. The other four gentlemen are all holding pruning shears and they are poised and posed over a pile of federal regulations. And if that's too subtle for the viewer, they are tied up in red tape. And the message, of course, is that they're going to destroy regulation, the rules, and the enforcement. They're going to work hand in glove with the industry, the lobbyists for the industry, to destroy. And Gillerin wants to signal through his holding of the chainsaw that he's going to be completely indiscriminate in doing so. Well, mission accomplished, guys. Wow. Well, now, with regard to Gore's uh, reinventing government, uh, who was behind that? I mean, what was the main thrust of it? Was it the whole idea to deregulate government, to get rid of it? Not entirely to get rid of it. It was First, it was an academic idea, uh, as all good ideas uh, that are disastrous, you know, they tend to come out of the academy. And it wasn't allegedly hostile to the government. It was reinventing it. But it did have this view that government was a failure, the private sector was a success, and the way for the government to become a success was to emulate the private sector, to embrace the private sector as all these public-private partnerships, and to tremendously whack back with a chainsaw uh, at the role of government through privatization. So wherever possible, you ended the government involvement through privatization. Where it wasn't possible, you had to have government, well, you downsized it and you put it in partnership with business and instructed the governmental folks to treat the business as the client as opposed to the American people as the client. So it was a disastrous uh, approach uh, that helped create this incredibly criminogenic environment. Now, I emphasize Gore at this point, but of course, this was very much the Clinton uh, philosophy, and it was the philosophy pushed by a certain governor of the state of Texas, uh, who, of course, was George W. Bush uh, as well. So this was one of those areas that was not partisan. Uh, everybody agreed, um, except a small group of rational folks who said this is insane. And this is sounding uh, very familiar because the same thing is going on as we speak. Yes, and what Americans don't know is that this movement was every bit as effective in much of Europe. So Americans tend to think of Europe as this incredibly socialist, highly regulated place. And they forget that one of our leading exports even now is um, economists. Uh, 
<laughs> right? We train much of the world through our PhD programs. And so by this time, in the senior ranks, uh, it is very common that you have the, the key technocrats have been taught with this anti-governmental economics out of the Chicago School and the reinventing government movements and such. And so the reports about the crises in Iceland and Ireland, and these are simply the places where the Europeans have actually done reports, emphasize that across the entire EU, regulation, banking regulation, largely disappeared. And even worse was the desupervision. So even when the rules existed, even when you found violations, there simply were no serious actions against the violators. And so, of course, between that and executive compensation, which Europe has also largely adopted from the United States, you created these intensely perverse incentives where you, you knew you could get away with fraud. You knew that fraud was a sure thing, that it would produce guaranteed massive but fictional profits, and that you knew that modern executive compensation would make you wealthy within a couple of years. Now, the firm might fail, but you would walk away wealthy. And this completely ignored real economics, and it completely ignored what had actually worked in the savings and loan crisis, and it completely ignored criminology as well. So in economics, the key article uh, has a great title that explains it all. It's Looting the Economic Underworld of Bankruptcy for Profit. So the CEO loots the bank, the bank fails, that's the bankruptcy part, but the CEO walks away wealthy, that's the profit part. And this is not obscure economists, this is uh, an article in 1993 by George Akerlof and Paul Romer. And George Akerlof uh, won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2001. So this is one of the most respected economists in the world who sounded this warning in 1993. And this article concludes with a paragraph for emphasis that says, you know, in the savings and loan crisis, economists had no theory of looting. And so they gave no support to the savings and loan regulators who figured this out from the beginning about the fraud incentives. Now we know better, I'm quoting them, and if we learn the lessons that the savings and loan regulators taught us, then we need not have these crises. And what did we proceed to do? We substituted dogma about failed policies that actually produced the crises. We ignored entirely that which we know works. Instead of stamping out liars' loans when they came back, nothing effective was done against them. Um, and so we don't know better, right? Well, we do, but the people making decisions who believe in this dogma, this theoclassical dogma, instead of any real world or any real world economics or any real world criminology or any study of actually what works as regulation, they know things that are not true. And that's the old line that is quite true. It isn't the things you don't know that cause crises. It's the things you do know 
but aren't true. That's the, the best quote. I love that quote. It's the things that you do know that aren't so. Something like that. Yes. That's right. And that, because it leaves you as a regulator um, fat and happy. You know that fraud can't exist. You know that markets exclude. You know that markets are efficient. You know that bubbles can't exist. Right? You know all these things. So why should you regulate? Why should you listen to the examiners who are finding the fraud in the field and trying to warn people up the chain? They don't have degrees in economics, doctorates in economics. They don't really know the revealed truth. You're listening to lawyer, academic, author, and former bank regulator, William K. Black. Today's show, The Greatest Bank Robbery Ever. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So, don't let anybody tell you that no one could predict this, no one saw this coming. The FBI, in September 2004, picked up by major chunks of the media, general and trade press, said, first, there is an epidemic of mortgage fraud. That was their word, epidemic. And second, they predicted it would cause a financial crisis. Crisis being their word. September 2004, seven and a half years ago. And then in 2006, early in 2006, the trade association of the people making these terrible loans has an anti-fraud group called MARI. And Mari issues the following warnings. First, these loans called stated income because you just state the income and nobody checks are, and I'm quoting, an open invitation to fraudsters. Second, the incidence of fraud, how common is fraud in these loans, is 90%, 9-0. They're virtually all fraudulent. Third, these loans deserve the phrase that the industry itself uses behind closed doors to describe them. They are liar's loans. Fourth, the industry seems to have forgotten that these loans used to exist back in the 1990-1991 period that I was talking about, and they caused millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of losses. Why would we do this again to ourselves? And fifth, the banking regulatory agencies are warning every chance they get against making these loans. So no, the industry wasn't forced to do this by the government. It's quite the opposite. The government actually warned them against it. But overwhelmingly, these were being done by non-federally regulated entities, like mortgage banks in particular. But, but, one agency did have the statutory authority to deal with the non-federally insured lenders who were driving this crisis through their fraud. And that agency was the Federal Reserve. And it had that authority since 1994 with the passage of the Home Ownership and Equity Protection Act, HOEPA. Alan Greenspan and then Ben Bernanke despite these warnings from the FBI, 
despite these warnings, even from the industry's own anti-fraud experts, despite pleas from all kinds of lefty-ish groups, including, by the way, ACORN, <laughs> which tried repeatedly to get the Federal Reserve to crack down against these loans. The Federal Reserve absolutely refused to use that authority until July 14, 2008, which is about a year after the loans had disappeared. Mm. So, you know, after the horses were out, the barn had burned down and everything had been raised on the farm, they came out and put padlocks on the ground. It was uh, incredibly insane. Why does it occur? Because both Greenspan and Bernanke, when it comes to fraud, are in the grips of this theoclassical dogma that says government's the enemy. The private sector is the solution. They would never make fraudulent loans because you'd lose money. Well, no, you don't lose money as the officer. The bank loses money. You get rich. So um, not only was nothing effective done, um, but the, things didn't just stay the same. By 2006, Half of all the loans called subprime, that means that they have known credit defects in their history. Is that the same thing as a liar's loan or is it different? No, well, that's where I'm just going. Okay, they good. tend, even today, many people say, well, there's subprime and then there's liar's loans and then there are prime loans. But in fact, by 2006, half of all the loans called subprime were also liar's loans. So those are not exclusive categories. You can, and you were typically by 2006, you were both of those things. By 2006, at least one third of all the loans made in that year were liar's loans. That's over, well over two million loans with 90% fraud rate. Amazing. So the bubble was hyperinflated because of this surge of fraudulent lending. And they didn't just run the frauds by lying about the borrower's income, they also inflated the appraisals. So your listeners, step back for 15 seconds and ask yourself this question. Why would an honest lender ever inflate the appraisal? The borrower can't inflate the appraisal. There's no reason why an honest lender would ever inflate an appraisal. The appraisal is your great protection against loss. So this is a superb marker of the presence of fraud. The Attorney General, then Attorney General of New York, Anthony Cuomo, uh, ran an investigation of Washington Mutual and found that Washington Mutual had a blacklist of appraisers. But you got on the blacklist if you were honest and refuse to inflate the appraisal. So again, we ask, this is the type of thing that a jury can understand in 10 to 15 seconds. Oh yeah, that makes no sense for an honest entity. Why are there no prosecutions? Why does Obama keep emphasizing that things weren't necessarily illegal? Well, of course, things weren't always illegal. 
That doesn't mean you don't prosecute where they were illegal. What is going on? Uh, financial institution prosecutions are down from peak by more than half over the last 20 years. The Bush administration, George W. Bush, had a terrible record. The Obama administration is slightly worse mm -hmm. in terms of these prosecutions. Mm -hmm. Under Attorney General Mukasey, who was Bush's last Attorney General, he refused even to create a national task force against the mortgage fraud that was destroying our nation's economy, saying that mortgage fraud is simply the equivalent of, I'm quoting him, white-collar street crime. Wow. So in the, I told you that we obtained in elite cases over a thousand felony convictions. To do that, at peak, we had a thousand FBI agents. The savings and loan crisis cost $150 billion. This crisis, just in the household sector, $11 trillion. This crisis is at least 70 times larger than the savings and loan crisis. And the role of fraud, given the 2 million cases that I talked about, over 2 million just in 2006, is concomitantly larger as well. As recently as fiscal year 2007, we had 120 FBI agents assigned to all cases of mortgage fraud in the United States, and they did the tiny cases. They didn't investigate a single large fraudulent lender because of Mukasey's refusal to look at them. Well, what happens if your most elite institutions, A, engage in massive fraud, B, the CEOs and other senior officers get incredibly wealthy by doing it. D, they're bailed out. And E, they're never prosecuted. Exactly. Then crime pays. It pays enormously. It is the primary route to wealth among financial institution executives at our elite institutions. Does this mean all bankers and all banks and all bankers? Of course not. But at our largest institutions, that's primarily how they prosper. And this conference in Italy is a good reminder of that, as is going back a little bit in time to the United States. Because everybody remembers, who's old enough, uh, the Enron crisis. And most of us are old enough. Um, what people probably don't remember is that Enron's insider frauds were only possible because the largest banks in the world eagerly aided and abetted those frauds. And there's a wonderful factual record because of the bankruptcy investigation that shows that the big banks knew they were aiding frauds. Not a single one of the banks was prosecuted for that. There is fabulous testimony in front of the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission that was the National Commission to investigate the causes of the savings and loan crisis. It's all available free online to your listeners, uh, should they go. Um, and it showed that the head of supervision from the Federal Reserve was so disturbed by the fact that the largest banks eagerly aided this fraud that he keyed up a special briefing for the Federal Reserve Board. So this is the presidential appointees uh, that run that agency. 
And he reports that they were enraged at him and the supervisors for doing so. Not at the banks for their frauds. Flash forward to Italy, Parmalat, a huge, huge milk and food company, but uh, one of the bigger firms in the world. Massive fraud, again, what we in criminology call a control fraud, which is simply where the people that control a seemingly legitimate entity use it as a weapon for fraud. Let me interrupt you for a second. I was going to ask you about control fraud, and is that the same thing as accounting control fraud, or is that different? Well, the weapon of choice in finance is accounting, and that was Parmalat's weapon as well. And that was Enron's weapon, and that was the savings loan crisis in the current crisis. But let me take 45 seconds and say, while I have been talking uh, overwhelmingly about the financial crisis, there are many different kinds of control fraud, and many of them maim and kill. So to give just one example, China has had a problem with counterfeit infant formula for years. So they introduced a governmental test to try to detect these counterfeits. And that test searched um, the compound for protein levels to make sure there was actual protein. Turns out it's cheaper to make infant formula with no milk, water, and essentially chalk. But now to spoof the protein test, they added melamine. That's right. So you now had a product designed for infants who need nutrition more than any humans that had zero nutritional value and had a contaminant that caused kidney stones in kids as young as three months old. Mm. At least six kids were killed. 300,000 were hospitalized. Wow. And every honest manufacturer of infant formula was driven out of the marketplace because if cheaters prosper, you can't compete with them, which again is why you need honesty, which is why you need government, you need the regulators functioning as the regulatory cops on the beat, because there are no police that function against white-collar crime. So you are correct. Accounting was the weapon of choice. It was the variety of control fraud that Parmalat used. But there are many other forms. Um, the ones that have been in the news recently have been uh, frauds against employees. Uh, the Apple suppliers and such. There's been some publicity. I've written a number of things about this. There are environmental frauds uh, where you certify that the timber is a new harvestable uh, stuff, but it's really old growth forests that you're destroying. Those are illegal uh, and fraudulent uh, things that are done by seemingly legitimate uh, companies uh, as well. You're listening to lawyer, academic, author, and former bank regulator, William K. Black. Today's show, The Greatest Bank Robbery Ever. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Parmalat used Bank of America and Citicorp to conduct 
its frauds, to aid and abet its frauds, Parmalat's owner, who was looting Parmalat and causing it to become massively insolvent, and then hiding the money uh, in offshore banks. And um, Citicorp created an entity to do this, and its Italian name translates to black hole. <laughs> oh my gosh. Right? But what happened is, in both of the banks' role in uh, the Enron aiding and abetting their frauds and aiding and abetting Parmalat's fraud, is that the Supreme Court ruled that you and I, if we're defrauded, or if our pension fund is defrauded, none of those, us directly or our pension fund, can sue the banks that aided, or the audit firms that aided and abetted the fraud. Only the SEC and the Justice Department can bring actions. And if they're under the control of people that refuse to prosecute the elites, again, the message is you can defraud with effective impunity. And so the banks learned this lesson. You know, Parmalat was essentially 2004 uh, type of thing. Um, and Ryan goes down in 2001. This is the lead up. This is when they're already helping to hyperinflate the bubble uh, in residential real estate that's going to destroy America, where they're already helping to hyperinflate bubbles in Spain and other countries that are going to cause these crises. So this is where we could have put the shot across the bow and prevented these kinds, this massive crisis, but they were unwilling to take any action. I told you about the entity that we cracked down on that did liar's loans that mm -hmm. uh, converted, gave up its federal charter to escape our jurisdiction. And I told you about how Roland Arnal became our ambassador to the Netherlands. Yes. But that's, in some sense, just politics, right? We're all used to that kind of scum. What was foreshadowed this crisis is two entities rushed to purchase this fraudulent entity, massively fraudulent entity that was a three-time loser in terms of regulators cracking down on them, including us originally. It was called AmeriQuest. And the two entities that rushed to acquire these pervasively fraudulent entity because it wanted these employees working for them were Citicorp and Washington Mutual. Washington Mutual, again, is the one that had the blacklist of appraisers, and Citicorp is notorious for supporting all kinds of frauds, including the Enron and Parmalat uh, frauds um, as well. But they wanted to acquire thousands of employees whose only claim to fame was that every day when they went to work, they defrauded people, and in particular, looked for minorities and the elderly to defraud. Mm. That's how sick our most elite financial institutions have become. Many of your listeners probably won't have heard of Washington Mutual, but it was, um, depending on how you count it, somewhere around the sixth or eighth largest bank in the United States. It's the largest bank failure in U.S. history. Oh, yeah. And didn't they feed it into to, uh, Chase? Uh, all of these, that's the other terrible thing we want to emphasize, and that is the systemically dangerous institutions. So one of the reasons that these massive banks are able to defraud with impunity is the government itself is telling us 
They are so big that if, as soon as the next one fails, it will cause a global crisis. And there are roughly 20 of them in the United States, large enough that when they fail, and it's a question of when, not if, mm. they will cause a global crisis. So we've made them bigger by allowing already systemically dangerous institutions to acquire massive entities like Washington Mutual, right? Mm -hmm. And countrywide, you know, Bank of America yes. uh, acquired countrywide and Merrill Lynch. This is insane. Um, first, all of these big 20 banks are so big that they're inefficient. In other words, if we cut them down in size dramatically, they would actually be better financial institutions. And they would no longer pose this ticking time bomb that they will cause a global crisis as soon as they next fail, or our only other choice is to bail them out and make them, you know, talk about destroying capitalism. This is the definition of crony capitalism. And of course, the big 20 banks, that also means well, they have immense political power. And with the Citizens United decision, they're now able to exploit that power so that finance is the leading political contributor to both of our major parties exactly. in the United States. And that dominance is actually larger in many parts of Europe than in the United States, right? Because they have even bigger entities relative to the size of their economies. So I'm not just describing a U.S. dynamic, I'm describing a dynamic uh, that has paralyzed much of uh, Europe. And as you've pointed out, it's just a question of time when one of these too big to fails fails and causes a global crisis. How do you see that unfolding? Well, first, a number of them are insolvent. Right. on any real economic basis. Right. Um, one of the terrible things in this crisis, again bipartisan, and talk about strange politics and strange bedfellows, the Obama administration, together with the Chamber of Commerce, and the Chamber of Commerce hates the Obama administration, uh, and, and with uh, support signaled from Ben Bernanke, the head of the Federal Reserve, helped create, at the behest of industry, they ginned up a congressional hearing. They brought in the professional auditors that set the accounting standards. It's called the Financial Accounting Standards Board, or FASB. And they put a figurative gun to their head and said, you will either change the rules, accounting rules, so the banks don't have to recognize their losses on these fraudulent assets, or we will remove your standard accounting standards setting authority. And that's the only authority they have. So they, it was in, you know, a, a mortal blow it would have been to them. And FASB, of course, caved wow. and changed the accounting rules so that the banks didn't have to recognize the losses, which they largely still haven't. And these faux stress tests that the Federal Reserve, the yes. Geithner ginned up and such... Um, first, all the big failures passed stress tests weeks or months before they failed. Fannie, Freddie, Lehman Brothers, the big three Icelandic banks, all of them passed with flying colors. So stress tests are always a farce. But here, 
they were ordered to do stress tests in which they ignored the real losses. And in Europe, they were ordered to do stress tests in which they ignored sovereign debt crisis, which of course is the crisis taking down Europe. Yes. So they think we're children. They think that they can, not only that they can lie to us, but that they can be really clumsy in their lies. And they will just go, oh, okay, well, I guess these banks are healthy now. Wow, what, what brilliance. You know, oh, the know. administration. Like they don't care <laughs> if anybody knows. No. No, they, they don't think we get, we're, that we're bright enough to put it together. No. Or that we'll do anything. That we've, they think that we've lost any capacity for outrage. And indeed, as soon as anyone gets outraged, they say, oh, that's terrible. How could you be outraged? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's class warfare. Or, or you're demonizing bankers. Well, no, just the frauds who are hiding the losses with you helping them <laughs> to hide the losses. And you're leaving them as systemically dangerous institutions, SDIs, where we're rolling the dice 20 times a day to see when we'll have the next crisis. You people are insane. You're treating us as insane? <laughs> Europe has this austerity regime. And, and the European austerity regime is captured very nicely by the poster many people have probably seen, which says, you know, the daily floggings will uh, continue until morale improves around here. Right? <laughs> austerity, when you're in a recession or trying to recover from a recession, is the worst possible economic strategy. It, you know, must lead to bad things. And it has put the Eurozone back into recession. Um, so this is insane. Now, like, austerity doesn't work. Everybody knows it doesn't work. Uh, no, 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 they don't. No, well, they know kind of, but they ignore that it doesn't work and they simply keep asserting. So just as we are doing this interview, uh, Draghi, the head of the European Central Bank, has said only austerity, right? This is the devastating Tina doctrine. There is no alternative. Well, what about Mario Draghi, president of the European Central Bank? There was a recent interview with him conducted by the Wall Street Journal, isn't that right? That's correct. Very upset as his interview uh, made clear, with much of Europe. So he thinks that there are several problems in Europe. One is the social safety net. A second is higher salaries for workers, especially working class uh, people. Uh, and the uh, other thing is he really distrusts democracy. So this was the most extraordinary performance in an interview of any central bank head that I've ever read. He just said flat out that the old Europe with any social safety net was dead. Not simply dying, not had to go, it was dead, right? And they had to go forward, and where they had to go forward was to get rid of rigidities, which is code for you had to make it easy to fire workers. And what needed to happen then was to use that ability to fire workers to substantially lower working class wages. 
Now, Draghi is not, doesn't trust European governments, though, because they are, after all, at least moderately um, democratic, to produce these results. And so he said that what we really needed was the discipline of the bond markets, in other words, the major financial institutions, to ensure that democracies did the right thing. Now, this is in the context of this massive crisis, which hit worst in Europe, that was designed by the policies of those exact banks, who destroyed themselves instead of applying discipline, and had to be bailed out by all of us. And now that we've bailed them out, they aren't supposed to be thankful to us. They are supposed to discipline us and resume their rule over us. William Black, thank you very much. Thank you, and thank the uh, over 2,000 Italians who ended up coming to this uh, summit. It's one of the remarkable things I've ever witnessed. Is something happening? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. You've been listening to William K. Black. Today's show has been The Greatest Bank Robbery Ever. William Black is Associate Professor of Law and Economics at the University of Missouri-Kansas City. He is a lawyer, academic, and former bank regulator, and author of The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One, How Corporate Executives and Politicians Looted the SNL Industry. Please visit the University of Missouri-Kansas City New Economic Perspectives blog at www neweconomicperspectives.org. Visit the website for the first Italian summit on modern money theory at www.democraziamt.info. That's democraziamt.info. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yarrow Mako. To leave comments, order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com or faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine.